I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and Sirius XM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Excited! I finally get to the gadunk dunk What's the gadunk dunk Yeah, you know, gadunk dunk 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 and welcome to the next series. Very excited about this one. So throughout our tenure here on No Dogs in Space, we've been focusing ultimately on the impact of what came after our bands released their best work, whether it be how they inspired future generations of musicians or what kind of cultural impact they've had. But the band we're going to be discussing on this series was not important for what came after, but rather for what came before. Because without this band an entire subsection of a fascinating and vibrant genre related to punk might have been lost. Now, I might be overstating the importance of record nerds like ourselves here. I fucking might be. I don't know. I don't know. I apologize if I am. Because, you know, this band, they were nothing if not obsessive record collectors. But had these people not scoured thrift store bins for hidden gems, searching for both inspiration and their own personal collections, we might not have the understanding that we do of the genre of rockabilly, at least not in the context of the history of punk. That's right. They did all the hard work that we barely have to do now <laughs> because that was before the internet. Yeah, now it's like, oh man, I gotta search for this fucking rare blog going through WFMU. Oh, oh it takes forever. Takes <laughs> oh, so long. Now, these people used to go through the thrift stores and go record by record by record, take huge stacks home, listen to them all, and then figure out what to do with the shitty ones. I guess take them right back to the thrift store. <laughs> Enough about you, Marcus. <laughs> Yeah, enough about my college years. See, while bands like the Stooges and the MC5 certainly set punk on its correct track by taking inspiration from the blues, rockabilly was punk long before the genre had a classification, as is evidenced by this recording in the mid-50s from the Collins Kids. She's a whistle bait. Oh, 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 oh,
for me. Her heels are clicking as she walks by. The press of pink chalk fills the eye. Hands are bent as she looks inside. She's a whistle bait. She's a one for me. She's a whistle bait. Whistle bait. Whistle bait. She's a one for me. How old was Larry Collins when he recorded that? 13. Jesus fucking Christ. 13 years old. Singing and playing guitar. And he wrote that song about undressing a girl with his eyes. Why not? It, well, I, actually, it was his dad who told him, like, hey, you should write a song called Whistlebait. Why? Because <laughs> that girl over there is really hot. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the Collins kids, like Lori and Larry Collins. Yeah. They always had the name of, like, very similar names. Lori and, <laughs> yeah, Lori and Larry, it's fun. But, yeah, they, they were they were a duo. They were brother and sister. They were pretty big in the in the 50s, and uh, they played for, for years, for decades. They, they came back together. Uh, they're great. Yeah, they're fantastic, and they are long. I mean, they're recording that shit long before anybody else is, you know? And it, even though, like, not all, it's not like the Ramones were listening the fucking Collins kids but the point is is that that style of music people just playing weird shit out in the middle of nowhere existed long before any of the shit in the 70s did yeah now even though the Collins kids were children the rockabilly genre overall is rough mean tender honest and best of all a lot of it was fucking weird because a lot of that music came from people picking up a guitar because they were bored and unsatisfied with what was going on in their lives. Just like fucking people like The Clash, The Sex Pistols, and The Ramones later did. Yeah, like Lux said, great rock comes from incredible boredom and repression. Yeah, and they were doing it in the style that they wanted to do it. They weren't fucking worrying about what was going what was going to sell, what was going to what was going to be the next big thing. I mean, some of them were, but for the most part, hey, I want to pick up guitar cuz I got something to say. And a lot of these guys yeah, might have gone to the dustbin of history had it not been for our band today. I mean, for example, without our band, it's not only possible, but almost certain that gems like Hassel Atkins might have died a lonely death with nobody ever really hearing the wonderfully weird music that he made. Well, I was going to tell you what happened. I went out last night, and I got his stuff. When I woke up, his body should have seen what I had in the bed with me. He jumped up out of bed, pulled his hand down his eye, looked at me like a guy in Canada come out on me. He said, he said, Right. She jumped out of the car. She put her hand down her eye. 
mean, it ain't the most technically skilled thing in the world, but hey, that's what he wanted to fucking play. What? I mean, what are you talking about? He was a one-man band. <laughs> he did all that himself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he played the guitar and the drums at the same time. Because when he was a kid and he was listening to Hank Williams on the radio, he thought that Hank Williams wasn't only singing, but he was playing all the instruments on the song. <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. All, like, all, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a fun thing for a kid to think. So Hassel was like, all right, I got to do that too. But the funny thing is later he actually did say like, yeah, I figured out the truth pretty early. <laughs> but I already started it, so I wasn't going to stop anyway. If I ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, exactly. And he was DIY. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like he made his own demos at home and made his own flyers for his live shows uh, th- that he would perform all over West Virginia because he was born, raised, and unfortunately died there. <laughs> hey, if he loved it, he loved it. <laughs> yes. Last scene. <laughs> <laughs> he sent letters uh, with promo copies to radio stations, to elected officials, to President Nixon, <laughs> who actually wrote him back. Really? Yeah, he was like, it was something like, Thanks for these promo copies. (laughs) I shall put them to good use. Uh, Oh, maybe I should record something. Oh, great idea. Thank you, Hassel. (laughs) A part of what made the band we're focusing on today great was the fact that they were not natives of New York City or London, unlike the majority of the bands we've covered thus far. I mean, Ramones, Suicide, New York guys, The Damned, they were London guys. The people we're talking about today were transplants. The driving duo behind this group, a madly in love couple named Lux Interior and Poison Ivy Rorschach, by their own choosing, they came to Manhattan because of the fledgling mid-70s punk scene. It was already in progress. But while they were often not punk enough for the punks and too earnest for the cool kids, this band's dedication to the past made this band a force to be reckoned with, especially when they paired that dedication with a healthy dose of horror. They were a cheesy late-night horror host bit with a punk twist. The house band, hired by Christopher Lee's Dracula, fronted by a shirtless Frankenstein's monster if Dr. Frankenstein ran Sun Records. They were the famed Crypt Keeper 5 from the Monster Mash, Come to Life. Wow, Dracula had dances? <laughs> Christopher Lee's Dracula did. The horror, the hammer horror Dracula did. <laughs> Hell yeah, he did. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, that was their reality, and we are welcome to join them. Absolutely. And when you put all that next to an unhealthy obsession with rockabilly and a dash of surf, you've got music that definitely didn't change the world. But God damn it, it's a good time, it makes you horny, and it makes you feel cool. Which, in essence is the cramps. Is Thank you. 
so simple. Yeah. I wish I came up with it. <laughs> it just makes perfect sense. It's so simple. The guitar is so simple. You know, it's a, it's that rockabilly guitar where it's just like, I mean, if I can play it, then it's sim- it's very simple. But, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's very simple. And it's, the lyrics are fucking genius. I got 96 tears and 96 eyes. God damn. That's so good. I know. It's like saying like, I know I'm weird. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's all it is. You fucking it's come like, at me. Yeah, yeah. Deal with it. Yeah. Who gives a shit? I'm going to bother you. <laughs> I got cool. a, Yeah. I got a garbage brain. It's driving me insane. <laughs> it's fucking great. Now, our main source today is Journey to the Center of the Cramps by Dick Porter, which it seems to be an expanded version of another cramps book by the same author called A Short History of Rock and Roll Psychosis. It is. It is. Uh, you read both of them. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, reading both of them was kind of fun, actually, because <laughs> you you get to compare and contrast. And uh, wow, I have a lot of time on my hands, apparently. <laughs> no, you're dedicated. Oh, that's right. Now, this writing and rewriting of the story should tell you something about fans of the Cramps. Now, while Gorehounds, that's what Cramps fans are called, Gorehounds. Now, while they're not as, let's say, defensive as Misfits fans are, it's certainly the same flavor of obsession. Yeah, they're too busy being horny. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the difference is that while the Misfits are testosterone in music form, the Cramps benefited from a female edge owing to guitarist Poison Ivy, which I think tends to attract a mellower sort of fan. Still dedicated, but definitely mellower. I mean, the Cramps fuck, the Misfits don't. (laughs) (laughs) It tends to fucking relax you a little bit. Yeah. Now, although the Cramps have had, by my count, 22 members between 1976 and 2006, the driving forces behind the band were Eric Perkheiser and Christy Wallace, better known as Lux Interior and Poison Ivy Rorschach. So let's begin our journey into what some might call the insular world created by the Cramps, starting with lead singer Lux Interior. Lux was born Eric Lee Perkheiser in the town of Stowe, Ohio, near Akron, where Lux's father worked at the Goodyear Tire Factory. Blue collar upbringing. Did they always make that Goodyear joke? What Goodyear joke? No, the worst one I've ever had. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. Yeah. Now, even though Lux was raised as a strict Catholic, which makes a lot of fucking sense when you think about it, the thing that gave young Lux joy was music, and his earliest memory involved one of the legends of country, Hank Williams. Tonight my head is bowed in sorrow I can't keep the tears from my eyes My son calls another man daddy The right to his love I've been denied My son calls another man daddy You'll never know my name, nor my face God only knows how it hurts me For another to be in my place Song's fucking 
devastating. Yeah. <laughs> How did we go from human fly to this? <laughs> it's a great fucking song. I mean, it's Hank Williams. What are yeah. you going to say? Yeah, what, what the fuck are you going to say? It's Hank Williams. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Lux, the little Lux. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> he, would, he grew up around two brothers. And he had one older brother, Ron, who was a lot, he was like nine years older than him. And he had a huge record collection. So Lux obviously wanted to hang around this really cool brother who also had like a motorcycle and he wore all leather and stuff and, and listened to the devil's music. <laughs> yes, sign me up. It's the devil's, that's, a, a, I mean, I know I've said it before, but it's just still, I, I will never quite understand how people listen to Great Balls of Fire and thought, oh, this will corrupt the children. <laughs> the children will have no future. It's like, no, it's going to lead to a fucking Dennis Quaid biopic a few years later. That's, that's the worst it's going to get. I like that movie. It's a great movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I love that movie too. It's really good. Uh, but yeah, it's it's not gonna fucking it's not gonna take Western civilization down like they thought it would. You know. Yeah. Well, for Lux, I mean, he didn't know any better, so he would just go run around or really tag along. Yeah. And just check out what his brother was doing and, and with the kind of music that the older kids were listening to. Yep. Never discount an older brother. Now, Stowe, Ohio was important to the evolution of Lux Interior as a musician because the Perkheiser family lived only four houses down from Stowe High School. See, back then, like music venues as we think of them didn't quite exist yet, especially for rock and roll musicians. I mean, sure, there were theaters and such. There always have been. But if you weren't quite big enough for a theater, you dealt with frat parties, dances, and high school kids. Think Animal House. Think Back to the Future. That was the life for a lot of these dudes. And in Stowe, Ohio... The place to play was the dog house. Yeah, the dog house, which is really <laughs> the high school auditorium. <laughs> the dog house. <laughs> it's much cooler if you call it the dog house, not fucking, you know, Bimble J. Pemberton Memorial Auditorium. It's the dog house. <laughs> yeah, because I think it was, uh, they were the, oh yeah, they were the Stowe High School uh, Bulldogs. Yeah. So every Saturday night they had dog house shows where live bands would come and play for these the high school kids. Lux was only 10 years old at that time, so he could only look through the windows and check out, like, the bands. Yeah. And one night, when he was kind of, like, just still hanging outside the window, the band that just finished playing were outside, like, loading up all their equipment into the van, and one of them lights up a cigarette. But then a cop sees it and says, hey, no smoking. And so the guy just makes a face and just throws a cigarette at the cop's feet and just walks away. Piss off, screw. I'll smoke where I want. And that's when Lux said, wow, I want to be like him. <laughs> I want to be a rock and roll star. I want to be in a band. It's so funny how those little things just end up rippling throughout history. Some <laughs> asshole throwing a fucking cigarette at a cop and we got the cramps. Where's that guy? Probably in jail. We don't know. Oh, we don't know. We don't know. He's dead. Yeah. He's absolutely dead. Oh, yeah. But as far as how Lux heard new music, he got most of his new tunes from Cleveland's WHKKFM, which was home to a fantastic rock and roll and R&B radio DJ named Pete Mad Daddy Myers. Let's just hear a little bit of Mad Daddy's patter. This was quoted in Journey to the Center of the Cramps. Welcome, little stinkers, to the land of winky blinkers. We've boiled up wavy gravy, and it's ready to flow. So hang loose, Mother Goose. Here comes the show. This is Bob and Jerry with Ghost Satellite on WHKKFM. Mad Daddy! <laughs> Ghost 
That's genuine rock and roll. You bless my soul. Don't fiddle with the knob. You stick around a while. Turn the lights down low for this Thursday night show. Ha! Mad Daddy! Yeah. <laughs> We've been doing that for two weeks. <laughs> It's a wonderful way to talk to your wife. I'll say that. It is kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the ghost satellite. That was back when, like, half of rock and roll was just about space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Mad Daddy, Pete Myers, a.k.a. Mad Daddy, uh, he, yeah, he called it wavy gravy because that was his idea of offbeat R&B. Hell yeah. You see, like, when he would do his radio show for hours, like, every single night, he would improvise everything. All those rhymes, all that spitfire kind of talk that was all completely improvised like like Groucho Marx that's crazy shit I know it was amazing he did it all he did the show the news the weather the time the commercials and he chose his own music something DJs could do back then yeah back then yeah when rock and roll radio first started like it really was like the DJs it was up to them what they wanted to play and of course you know program directors got involved later after the whole payola scandal but that is a story for a different time <laughs> So, he played real... Gonna, I got a fucking mass communications minder, and I'm going to fucking use it. Okay. <laughs> Can I go now? Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> so, I've used it. <laughs> Mad Daddy, he played like real offbeat R&B music, which, like I said, wavy gravy. And he was really popular in the area, especially like teenagers and young kids, just like Lux. Like he even called Mad Daddy once on the phone and he like convinced him that he was the president of his Mad Minions of fan club and stuff and got to talk to him. And like and he did the whole thing and rhyme and everything. And that's just something that Lux like never forgot. He's like, this guy was a true influence you know, this he was amazing in every way and that's, taught me a lot about music. That's so cool. I remember calling up radio DJs in the old days and like being like really nervous to talk to fucking Frank Payne. Like, hey, I know this KYJ. You guys are great. I'm sorry. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> now, Mad Daddy Myers was flying high in Cleveland, but he had higher ambitions outside of the locals because he was fucking great. He was yeah. Very, very talented. Eventually, he went to New York City but ultimately failed to achieve success. Mad Daddy Myers, you know, mental illness often comes with genius. He killed himself with an antique shotgun in an apartment in the Upper East Side as his wife was taking a nap in the next room. He had untreated depression that he never really dealt with uh, and unfortunately died. But before Mad Daddy had even gone to New York, he tried on the role of horror movie host for a show called Shock Theater on a local Cleveland TV station. And the whole horror movie host thing, this was brand new at this time. Yeah, because in 1957, Universal Studios released like their library of all old horror films from like the 30s and 40s and just you know got this huge package called it Shock Theater and sold it to TV stations for real cheap. Yeah, and but the thing is about it is that like not all of the movies that Universal made back then were Dracula or Frankenstein. There was a lot of garbage. Like, there was <laughs> well, a lot. Well, that's what of... a package is about. <laughs> See? Yeah, and you're also you're gonna run out of movies eventually. You're gonna run out of the classics eventually, and then you're just left with the brain that wouldn't die. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. And thus, Mystery Science Theater is born. Exactly. <laughs> now, while. Horror movie hosts don't really exist on actual television outside of public access anymore. Because I know Sven Gulli's still doing it out in fucking Chicago. Horror movie hosts used to be an American institution on late night local TV stations and basic cable later on. And if you've never had the pleasure of seeing a horror movie host in action, people like the oft-mentioned Myla Nermi, a.k.a. Vampira, we've mentioned her like five times on this fucking show so yes. far for some reason, 
these people would pop in and out of late night horror movies to make bad jokes and do a couple of bits and skits to liven up the slot. Bad jokes? (laughs) Where do you think my influence came from? Calling them bad? You're calling it bad? It's the same influence as me, darling. I mean, we've got our influences for like horror movie hosts were hugely influential on the two of us. I mean, I had Joe Bob Briggs. I had Elvira. Yeah. I mean, Monster Vision on TBS. I fucking loved it because, you know, Briggs, he was the first person who showed me that there were other weird Texans out there who liked weird shit, who were doing weird shit, who were making a living doing it and were doing it with a fucking Texas accent. Yeah. And Elvira was showing like that. You could be funny and sexy. Hell yeah. You see this? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Everyone can't see it at home, but... It's not oh. for anyone else. <laughs> it's just for me, and I thank you for that. I'm, I'm just staring at you. <laughs> but back to the horror host of the 60s. After Mad Daddy failed and left, he was replaced by the guy who had the 12 to 2 DJ shift on WHKK. His name was Ernie Anderson, but he was better known by his stage name, Goulardi. Ooh, Goulardi. Cool it with the boom booms. <laughs> Overday, Oxnard. Kniff. Don't be a kniff. <laughs> I ain't being kniff. Hey, I'm sitting over here staying sick. Oh, look at you, Overday. <laughs> well, yes, Goulardi, uh, he did work like alongside of Mad Daddy at one point a few years earlier, but then he went into TV, and then in 1963, he started as Goulardi. Was the exact same thing as Shock Theater, really, you know, with the fake accent and he would wear a wig, beard, glasses. And and he actually looked like a very early Dr. Clayton Forrester. Yeah. Again, from Mystery Science Theater. I mean, they're just Mystery Science Theater 3000 is just late night horror hosts with a bunch of them. Yes. And and puppets. It's the same fucking thing. And we're actually (laughs) friends with a couple of them. Yeah. So I actually contacted Trace Bellew and I said, hey, where did you get that from? Do you know Goulardi? Because you guys kind of look a little bit similar and he predates you and he's like no no I have no idea who that guy is <laughs> uh, I, I was just the character was based on some stand up I used to do and the uh, you know and, and then the hair was a B movie stereotype of a mad scientist I'm like oh okay, okay. <laughs> well thank you thank you yeah I mean he did a look I mean that's if you're trying to b- picture what Goulardi looked like yeah he looked a lot like that but but the way it was shot was so much fun because it was shot on really shitty cameras and really shitty lighting which made it look really fucking cool and yeah. Goulardi was full of shitty one-liners like he was like yeah I love pl- to play poker you know how you play poker you get a girl and you poker like it's <laughs> again I don't know why you keep using this adjective called shitty <laughs> this looks great but the funny thing is like the movies were kind of shitty the that, movies that, were terrible. that was true like Goulardi he would say like he would go on and say the movie sucks. <laughs> if you're staying up to watch it, you're wasting your time, which was new for TV to, yeah. you know, and eventually, as you said before, turned into Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yeah. And Goulardi would also like do a lot of cool like punk things like he would set off fireworks. Yeah. Like one time he got one from a viewer that was like so big that actually it blew off the control room window and <laughs> there was just smoke everywhere. They had to like grab every extinguisher they could in the building and just put it out themselves. And like he could not get fired. They never stopped because filming, was, by the way. No, when he, did, it was when he was doing that. It was like, all live. It was all live. And actually that was a, uh, there was a scene in Boogie Nights was inspired by that whole firecracker thing because Paul Anderson is actually the son of Goulardi. Yep, go Goulardi is PT Anderson's dad. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah, the scene with Alfred 
Melina, you know, as I want what's in the goddamn safe, in the goddamn bedroom. (laughs) Plain Sister Christian. (laughs) Cosmo. Yeah. Yeah. But Gullardi was fucking great. Yeah. He was a hit, like, in just a few months. Like, he even beat The Tonight Show in that area. I mean, of course, there were only three channels back then. But anyway, (laughs) that was why he got away with so much stuff like that. And Lux loved this. This was punk to him, you know, from back in the mid-60s at this point. And Lux would also get all the promotional stuff that Goulardi sold, like stickers and book covers. And he even had batty buck shoes that had a bat in front. And it was real popular with the kids at school. Of course. And, uh, yeah, and he would drink the fluorescent blue-green Goulardi milkshakes that they would sell that say stay sick and turn blue which actually would make him sick <laughs> yeah and the, the cramps like they would take the uh, these sort of like catchphrases that Goulardi used you know especially stay sick and they'd use them in songs like throughout the fucking years and even like you were telling me earlier like they just say Goulardi catchphrases in interviews yeah. just to be fun yeah I mean it definitely resonated with him for the rest of his life. Huge influence. And he was instrumental to his development. And a big part of it was, of course, like Goulardi's attitude and his aesthetic. But it was also partly because even though Ernie Anderson, a.k.a. Goulardi, he fucking hated rock and roll. Yeah. Like, hated it. And, you know, every once in a while, he'd do a bit that featured obscure rock and R&B songs. And specifically, one of Goulardi's most popular bits used a band called The Rivingtons who we'll talk about more when we get to our massive treatise on Surfing Bird next episode. Ooh. But until we get there, here's the Rivingtons with Papa Oom Mau Mau. guys the fucking story of surfing bird (laughs) (laughs) i know pull up a chair it'll be a while (laughs) pull up a chair grandpa's gonna talk about surfing bird again (laughs) planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination then check out the language learning program rosetta stone on desktop or as an app rosetta stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning plus the true accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation don't put off learning that language there's no better time than right now to get started for a very limited time listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you don't have consumer cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Now, with all these rebellious influences, you know, the freewheeling goulardies and mad daddies of the world, Lux by the 60s had cultivated his own greaser persona, complete with a fucking... He used to steal hubcaps. Like, yeah, he was a hood. He was in a gang. Yeah. I mean, it's not like a gang that you think today. I mean, it was just a group of kids in Stowe, Ohio. Yeah, so flipping th- fucking coins on the street corner. Hey, old man, hey, where you going? Yeah. You're a hood or you're not a hood? <laughs> But even though Lux was doing his best impersonation of a juvenile delinquent living in 1957, in reality, the year was 1967, and kids like him, whose dads worked at tire factories, were getting drafted to fight in the Vietnam War at an alarming pace. So, to avoid the draft, Lux took the path of least resistance and enrolled at California State University in Sacramento, where he soon took to calling himself Vip-Vop, after the R&B track by Marvin and the Johnnies. And the thing is, can't play Vip-Vop right now because I can't find Vip-Vop. <laughs> I can't find Vip-Vop. I, it was on YouTube, but then the fucking account got deleted. And it, that was the only place that it lived on the internet. If you want to hear Vip-Vop, you're going to have to fucking go and track down the 45 to Vip-Vop. It's a co- cool song. And if you don't know any of these goddamn songs, you know, don't worry about it. Don't worry about these it. These songs were not popular. They were all obscure. They were all rare. Lux preferred it that way, and that instinct was shared by his music and life partner, Christy Wallace, a.k.a. Poison Ivy Rorschach. As opposed to Ohio, Ivy was born in San Bernardino, California, known affectionately to locals as San Bernardino. <laughs> and rather than a working-class background, Ivy's father was an aerospace engineer, and her mother pretty much flipped houses for a living. So they fucking moved around Constantly. Yeah, she moved nine times during her childhood. Duh. Yeah, constantly. And since they were flipping these homes, like people would come in and stare at them because they're looking at the house. And, and you know, I, Poison Ivy's just sitting there, like playing with her dolls, like, all right, <laughs> I guess it's like a zoo in here. <laughs> but yeah, she moved around a lot. She had a hard time keeping friendships. Like, so she had to just make do with her own little world, which I totally understand. Yeah, you moved around. You were the exact same way, except you were moving to different fucking countries. Yes. Not just different parts of California. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but she did things that like, man, I wish I came up with this. Uh, she would blow up Barbie dolls with firecrackers. She would burn down paper villages she made, dressing up the cat in funny costumes. <laughs> you know, like real loner type stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely the... I mean, you at least had, you know, brothers and such. I had my younger brother. Yeah, who yeah. I'd be like, come on, let's go roller skating. He's like, oh, fine. <laughs> and he was my younger brother. <laughs> but the one thing that kept Ivy sane during all this tumult was music. Ivy came from a family of classical musicians, but her tastes were more in tune with novelty songs that had a horror edge, even if the horror was light and the songs were goofy as shit. But, you know, the fact that the songs were goofy as shit was part of what made them great. Now, for those of us who grew up in America, I mean, you grew up outside of America, so I don't know if you know these songs from your childhood at all. Well, I I came to America when I was 16, and I've been catching up on pop culture ever since. (laughs) (laughs) So I might. Yeah, but like, I mean, these songs were played for kids. 
you know, especially back in the 80s. And personally, I fucking loved him. I mean, first, you had a song by David Seville, which uh, actually predates his later work with Chipmunks. Even though he used the higher voice Chipmunk voice, it was not technically a Chipmunks release. <sighs> Just play the song. Yeah, which, <laughs> it's Witch Doctor, you know? Yeah, oh, I know yeah, Witch Doctor. Yeah, Witch Doctor. I, I watched the Chipmunks uh, God movie. damn it, it's not a Chipmunks. It was. It predates the Chipmunks. <laughs> what? I <don't, laughs> sorry, I wasn't listening. <laughs> you know, it's goofy. But, you know, in the context of the Cramps, songs like this, you know, and the development of Poison Ivy, it's essential. I told the Witch Doctor I was in love with you. I told the Witch Doctor I was in love with you. And then the witch doctor, he told me what to do. He said that... Theo was my favorite. <laughs> God damn it. The release was David Seville. The Chipmunks were not yet a creation of Dave Seville. It was just a high voice that he did. So, but where's Alvin? <laughs> I'm, I'm just messing with you. We'll talk about this later. Okay. <laughs> and of course, after Witch Doctor, you had one of the biggest novelty hits of the day. This one, it was by an actor named Sheb Woolley. Uh, he's the guy, you know, the Wilhelm scream? The, ah! Like yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> That's Sheb Woolley. You know, he was an actor in Westerns. But he also wrote the rockabilly-tinged hit, Flying Purple People Eater. Well, technically, it's called The Purple People Eater, but, you know. Got it. Well, I saw the thing coming out of the sky. It had a one long horn and one big eye. I commenced to shaking in the city. It looks like a purple people eater to me. It was a one eyed, one horn flying purple people eater. One eyed, one horn flying purple people eater. A one eyed, one horn flying purple people eater. Sure looks strange to me. One yeah, we used to have that too. Because yeah. remember, a lot of obscure shit did end up in Latin America. Ah, that's right. That's correct. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, that's another well, That's another Oklahoma guy. You know, like Oklahoma really doesn't get enough credit for being fucking weird. And Sheb Willie, I mean, he's from the same county in Oklahoma where my people are from, you know, near Sayre, Oklahoma. Uh, and actually, he married a distant relative of mine. Uh, I knew yeah. you were going to bring this up. <laughs> yeah. He does this every time we go out. <laughs> Waiters hate it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, those songs, they're hokey as fuck. And all three of those ended up being known as children's songs. Or at least they were when we were kids in the 80s. But I suppose the difference is in what you did with these songs afterward. I mean, most people, they left these songs behind as relics of their childhood. But others took them to heart and let those songs live inside for the rest of their lives. I mean, for Poison Ivy, these songs, which were all at once light horror and fantastic fun, they never left. Yeah, I mean, she would get, like, so excited as to hear songs, especially, like, uh, was it the Martian Hop song by the yeah. Randells? Like, her brother would put on that song and tell his friends, like, hey, watch this. And then when the song would start playing, Ivy would just run in the room and just start running around and jumping off the furniture because something in that song just sparked in her. And I get it. Like, she just couldn't get enough of it. A lot of kids have that one song. Like, yeah. with my younger brother, it was La Bamba. <laughs> yeah. With me, it was Gloria Stefan Conga. <laughs> I don't know why, but there was something in it. For me, it was Bob Seger's old time rock and roll. You see? <laughs> Everyone has a song. Everyone's got a song. And that's, I mean, in those songs, like, yeah, they're goofy. I used to have nightmares about the flying purple people eater. It was terrifying, but I loved it. It was fucking great. 
But since Ivy did move around constantly, I mean, as she left childhood, you know, and became a teenager, she had a hard time fitting in, which led to her earning a reputation as the bad girl wherever she went. That is amazing to have a reputation every time you move. <laughs> Because, well, that's the thing. She started wearing a lot of makeup. She started smoking at a really young age, you know, dabbling in acid and, and pot, like, at a very young age. She was, like, 14, 15 at the time and got expelled from school twice. I mean, a lot of it was because she didn't fit in every time yeah. they had to move. And maybe she couldn't relate to her family as well either. And so that way she kind of developed, like, a toughness about her. Yeah, a tough exterior that yes. only looks... Only looks can break. Lock that key. <laughs> but concerning music, after moving on from all the novelty stuff, Ivy began listening to all the music that would influence her as a guitarist. And when she began to show interest in the instrument, her brother taught her a few simple riffs and the chords to the Shantae's surf classic, Pipeline. surf now that's a genre mm. that's a big one to get into yes <laughs> but it's great i love surf and building off that ivy explored the world of surf even more and eventually happened upon jack nietzsche's lonely surfer which she said in an interview is the reason why she got serious with guitar There was no guitarist who was more influential to Poison Ivy than the king of the reverb, Link Ray. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You've been getting into Link Ray. Get ready. Just put your volume knob all the way up now. Ready? Go.
said, God damn, God damn, I love Link Ray. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, that's the fucking, it's like a lesson in cool. Yes. I mean, this guy is was super cool. Unfortunately, he passed away a few years back. But Link Ray, he played guitar all his life. And he played in jazz bands. He played Western swing music with Hank Williams. And with that, he took old country songs and jazzed them up to make them the rock and roll style you can hear. Which is so cool, and that that was Rumble. Like that was his first hit that he he got when he was like twenty nine years old in nineteen fifty eight. Link Ray and the Raymen. Yeah. Oh gosh, I, I I still I'm so excited. Like we we should watch Desperado, like tonight <laughs> again. <laughs> but when he recorded the the demo of Rumble, he poked holes in the speakers of the amps with a pencil, and that's what gave it a distortion. And that's what he sent out, and then he actually got. A record deal from that, which was amazing. Bob Dylan called Rumble the best instrumental song ever. I mean, this guy influenced everybody. And it's very simple. Like, it's such a simple fucking song. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's, I mean, Link Ray, I mean, this is the creation of distortion. Yeah. You know, it's like poking holes, fucking around, seeing what sounds good and saying that sounds good. I'm going to fucking do that. I mean, Link Ray, he's a visionary. Yeah. You know, everybody followed Link Ray. So, with a head full of surf and distortion, Christy Wallace attended Sacramento State, apart from Lux, in 1972, and also chose a new name. Referencing both the Batman villain and the coaster song of the same name, she began to refer to herself as Poison Ivy. How do you do that? How do you get to just call yourself something? That's so cool. <laughs> it really is. She comes on like a rose. But everybody knows She'll get you in touch You can look but you better not touch Poison Ivy Poison Ivy Late at night while you're sleeping Poison Ivy comes a creeping around She's pretty as a daisy But look out man she's crazy She'll really do you in If you let her get under your skin Poison Ivy Poison Ivy Late at night while you're sleeping Poison Ivy comes a creeping around Measles will make you bumpy And mumps will make you lumpy I mean, the coasters, like, yeah, they're known for, like, you know, Yakety Yak, Charlie Brown. Those are their big hits. But Poison Ivy, down in Mexico, right on cell block number nine. The coasters, <laughs> now that's worth getting into. If you're really into, like, those, like, vocal groups from back in that time, the coasters are the best. Now, the story of how Ivy and Lux met sort of changes depending on when either one was given the interview. But our main source places their first encounter appropriately on the side of the road. Yeah. Poison Ivy was hitchhiking. Bad idea. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> it was a very popular it was a very popular thing to do back then. Yeah, I know. I, which is <laughs> the funny thing. I'm well thing. aware of how, how popular hitchhiking was and the consequences of the popularity of hitchhiking. And then it stopped being popular immediately after that. <laughs> after a lot of people were abducted. Anyway. After a lot of people died. But it worked out for them because... Ivy, she was hitchhiking wearing a sexy halter top and like these tiny short shorts with like a big hole in the ass with her like red panties like showing through the hole and she's walking down there with her thumb out. Lux was just driving by on the road with a friend and they both went, ooh, who's that? 
and that was the first thing he noticed about her. She was hot. Hell yeah. So he pulled over, gave her a ride home, and they started talking a little bit. And then he realized, ooh, she's smart too. I like her. Are you going to skip over his actual quote of what he said? He had a hard on. <laughs> he got a hard on. I got a hard on about three miles high for poison ivy. <laughs> now, going off of this chance meeting, Ivy and Lux decided to both take a class together the next semester at Sacramento State called Art and Shamanism. Or, at the very least, they both casually mentioned that they were thinking about maybe. taking it. Maybe. Yeah, maybe I'll take it. I don't know. So maybe I'll see you there. And then um, they did. <laughs> <laughs> that really was what happened. Like, Ivy, she was sitting class like right when the first first day and Lux walked in to like this big huge classroom and she's like please sit by me sit by me please 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 and then he just walks over he sits down and he goes hey 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 (laughs) (laughs) and she said it's my birthday today I don't know why I'm telling you this but (laughs) it is and he was like oh cool so he grabbed his bag he took out like this drawing that he made of a naked female body it was like a very abstract drawing that he had done and he gave it to her as a present and that's when Ivy said she said I felt like I've known him all my life yeah which it's true I mean since then they were they were an item forever they fell in love they moved in with each other after only two weeks they stayed together for 35 years now this being 1972 Ivy and Lux joined the rest of the class of 76 in getting into glam. Ivy and Lux were actually lucky enough to see the New York Dolls in San Francisco at their peak. And the Dolls made such an impression that Ivy and Lux decided, what the fuck, let's start a band. Yeah, if they can do it, then we can do it. (laughs) So in order to educate themselves in the ways of glam, Ivy and Lux took up what would become a lifelong passion for both of them. They started record collecting and they started doing it together. Now, at first, they got into all the bands you'd expect for the time. They got into Alice Cooper, T-Rex, Iggy Pop, David Bowie. But pretty soon, they realized that glam, cool as it was, it just wasn't them. And as they began to explore the record sections of the secondhand shops, instead of the new releases at the record store, they began to discover who they were. As a general rule, Ivy and Lux would look for weird shit. And, in their words pick up anything that had the word bop in the title, which proved to be a long-lasting influence that carried into their work all the way to the late 80s. I woke up last night and I thought I was going to die. Oh, I said, I woke up last night and I thought I was going to die. Oh, yeah. well, my doctor came a-running and my family stood Yeah, I mean, Ivy and Lux, they would get up really early and drive to a thrift store and wait for the truck to come in early in the morning. I don't know what, I mean, yes, they're huge record collectors. I know this. It got so intense that Ivy actually got a job at Goodwill. 
Go yeah. straight to the source. Yeah, man. why not? That way she could get, get first dibs on any records that would come in. But uh, that didn't last very long. Uh, Ivy quit that job at Goodwill because, quote, it was like a real job. <laughs> so that's yeah, not it's fun. Yeah, a shitty job. Yeah, I had a friend who worked uh, at a thrift store for the blind in Lubbock uh, back when we were in college. She fucking hated it. <laughs> <laughs> But they actually got so good at diving into the secondhand racks to find rare and forgotten music that they were able to work out a deal with a place called Ed's Rare Record Emporium, where they could trade stacks of secondhands for expensive behind the counters. You know, that's where they that's yeah. where they keep all the more expensive. That's where they keep the most expensive rare records. I'm aware. <laughs> yeah, you've gone to me with plenty of places and I go, like, oh, shit, look at that. And I'm like, no, that's two hundred dollars. <laughs> that's insane. You're right. Yes, dear. That is the, <laughs> one of the very few times in our fucking marriage. And I'm like, yes, dear. I know. <laughs> 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 but perhaps Lux and Ivy's most ambitious project came when they drove 2,000 miles from Sacramento to Memphis, Tennessee to pilfer the Sun Records warehouse for 20 cents a record, which to a Rockabilly fan is pretty much heaven for sale. They took their 1961 Chevy wagon out for a road trip from Sacramento to Memphis, which is a 31-hour drive. Oof. And that Chevy wagon made it about 30 hours until <laughs> they broke down. Broke down right outside of Memphis. They could just see it from there. The car <laughs> fell apart. They managed to get to the warehouse somehow and spend whatever money they had left on a ton of records. And Lux eventually got his parents to wire him some money to fix up the car and, and, and buy more records <laughs> and drove back to California. But the car was so heavy with all those records, it barely made it back. Like, could you just imagine the trunk just like thunk, of course. thunk, thunk. <laughs> Records are fucking heavy. And this is all in the middle of winter. Of course. Oh, God. Jeez. Yeah. Good driving back. Yeah. Driving back through America. And this is before. This is right when the highway system was like kind of starting up. Like it was <laughs> the highways were there. But yeah, there's a lot of fucking back roads in that. No, I know that. Like that's my parents used to fuck it. Every time my parents would give me money, it always came with the caveat. Don't spend this on records. This is for food. <laughs> yeah okay all right oh, yes sure. <laughs> they fucking yelled at me all the time don't fucking spend this on i know you're buying awful food and not and not not buy buy real food don't buy records <laughs> okay bought records but besides picking up early recordings from elvis johnny cash carl perkins roy orbison jerry lee lewis lux and ivy were also able to pick up the lesser known sun acts like lux's biggest vocal influence charlie feathers Just a step in the If you 
Rockabilly hiccup. Uh, yeah, Love <laughs> said he invented that. <laughs> Charlie Feathers. Now that guy. Wow. Yeah. Okay. He was born Charles Lindbergh, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Luckily, he changed it to Charlie Feathers. Yeah. He started working for Sam Phillips at Sun Records in the early 1950s, you know, as a musician, like as one of the guys just in. Session the, guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he's, you know, he said he had, he worked with Johnny Cash and Elvis. Like he liked country okay, but what he really wanted to play was rockabilly. Yeah. Or how Charlie put it, you just change the banjo to the guitar and just call it rockabilly. <laughs> yeah, add a gadunkadunk. Yeah, so th- that's when he actually left Sun Records and he went to King Records and he did record a lot of like really cool songs like I Can't Hardly Stand It. Yeah, it's a great fucking song and that ended up being one of that's I would say probably the Cramps most famous cover. Yeah. Now, before meeting Lux, like, I mean, Lux was always in a rockabilly. Rockabilly was his fucking thing. But before meeting Lux, rock, rockabilly wasn't necessarily something that Ivy knew a hell of a whole lot about. But after she started getting into it, she began discovering lesser-known female rockabilly guitarists and singers like Wanda Jackson, the first lady yes. of rockabilly, who was both. And the Cramps later worked on a re-recording of her song, Funnel of Love, heard here in its original form. Fantastic singer, fantastic guitarist. Yeah, she deserves mad respect. She really does. I mean, like, the, the way just she had to deal with the record industry <laughs> as as a woman. As $20. Uh, she had to deal with a lot. I mean, they at first, like, they would be like, oh, girls don't sell records. And then they're like, oh, no, come here. We'll make you the female Elvis. And then it just, it, it kind of, the whole thing is just muddy. We don't have time, but yeah. she does deserve our respect. She really does. Fantastic. But the biggest problem that Lux and Ivy had in Sacramento was the same problem Iggy and the Stooges had in Detroit. Sacramento was fucking full of hippies. Again. <laughs> Again with this. And the hippie scene, just like the punk scene later on, it's the same shit. They had formed a strict orthodoxy of behavior and dress that completely betrayed the freedom it was supposed to promote. Yeah, that's another thing because it's about, you know, freedom, like you said, about being able to express yourself the way you want to and wear flowery dresses. And are you going to eat that sandwich? <laughs> it's got meat in it. Meat is murder. 
See, I mean, it kind of gets repressed after a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It gets filled with rules. And besides their problems with the counterculture, Ivy and Lux also have problems with mainstream local culture, because regular Sacramento folk didn't take too kindly to Ivy and Lux's weirdness. <laughs> well, I mean, Lux did call himself a psychedelic guru. <laughs> I mean, when he was Vip-Vop. Yeah, when he, was, he was also calling himself Vip-Vop. We also neglected to say that he changed his name to Vip-Vop on his driver's license. Yes. So if he got like pulled over by a cop, the cop would be like, I have to actually write this down to give you a ticket. I can't believe this. But yeah, and he's like, occupation, psychedelic guru. <laughs> what? And he made himself one because Why? All you have to do is take enough drugs. Of course. Which he did all the time. He was on mescaline for months, he says. Uh, acid. All the mind-expanding psychedelic stuff that, that you would get your hands on in the 70s. Yeah. And they would hitchhike around together, still hitchhiking, uh, back in those days. And, and they would get yelled at and honked at on the street. It, it was because the way they dressed, they wanted to dress the way they felt comfortable. You know, I, Ivy would dress up sometimes like Mark Bolin, for, you know, T-Rex sometimes. And Lux would get into drag. Or sometimes they'd both dress up as girls and get picked up by guys who would say, Hey, what kind of trouble are you girls looking into? Huh? <laughs> Want to come to a party? Lux was a very convincing uh, woman. Yeah, it's just trying to hide the stubble and be like, oh, no, home will be fine. Like, no, he had to, like, keep quiet since he didn't have a convincing girl voice. It's like, you yeah. know, in that movie, Willow, like, not a woman, <laughs> not a woman. But it just, it wasn't fun for them. No, it wasn't. It was the wrong place for them. And so because of all that and a legal issue that for some reason Lux and Ivy never want to go into, they just say there was a legal issue. We had to go. They left Sacramento and returned to Lux's hometown of Akron, Ohio. Or Akron, I guess, whatever. Someone's going to give me shit for that. <laughs> there, Lux finally became Lux, changing his name after seeing the term deluxe interior used over and over in a series of local car commercials. And Vipvop, formerly Eric Perkheiser, went by Lux Interior for the rest of his life. Oh, we forgot about Raven Beauty. That's right, he did go by Raven Beauty for... Way too long. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> call yourself whatever you want to call yourself go. whatever, yeah. yeah. It was also in this brief stopover in Akron that Poison Ivy came up with the name for their band before the band had any more members besides just Ivy and Lux, creating possibly the most evocative band name outside of the slits of the early punk era. You hear the name The Cramps, you know what they sound like. Yeah, it's because they liked the kinks. Yeah. You know, they really like watching the kinks, uh, you know, do their live shows and everything. They're like, oh, I like their name. You know, it's like a gang name. So they thought, like, what should we do? Like, we want to do it like kinks. Like, kinks is, like, bad. Like, it's, like, kinky. It's naughty. We need to find an American version of that. The cramps. Yeah. The cramps, like a violent affliction. Yes, it's, it's, it's just something that just goes wrong or goes bad, and we're here to show you. Yeah, like nothing good comes from a cramp. No. Right? <laughs> like nothing good comes from it. It sounds dirty. Uh, it sounds kind of scary, like just a little bit. And it sounds dangerous. But, you know, a name that really is just like a mild inconvenience. Like a cramp <laughs> is a mild oh, inconvenience. Really? <laughs> okay, it can be a major inconvenience sometimes, but it's an inconvenience nonetheless. A cramp isn't going to fucking kill you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it was something in my... <laughs> As a woman. As a woman, $20. <laughs> 
And not surprisingly, the record selections in the thrift stores of Akron were even better than those in Sacramento, because a ton of Southerners had moved to Ohio for work in the 50s and 60s, and they brought their record collections with them. And specifically, a lot of those workers that came to Ohio were black, and they brought stacks of rare local blues records from the South that would give Ivy and Lux the final ingredient they needed to eventually become the Cramps. Lux might have been content to just bum around Akron for the rest of their lives, maybe playing a show here and there, and maybe recording something that would have gone the way of Hassel Atkins. But in 1975, Lux and Ivy read an article in Sounds Magazine about a new venue in New York City called CBGB that seemed right up their alley. So they drove to New York City and caught pre-record deal performances from the Ramones and television. You can definitely hear some of television in the cramps. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's very, very, I mean, it might be they were coming from the same place, but yeah, you can definitely hear that influence. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the true accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. But Ivy and Lux weren't the only kids in Ohio making pilgrimages to CBGB. While they were on one of these trips, 
Ivy and Lux met a 19-year-old student from Kent State named Miriam Lena. Yeah, Miriam and her sister Helen, they made a road trip from Ohio to New York City to actually see their friends, uh, Pierre Ubu, play in oh, New York City. nice. Yeah, because yeah. Pierre Ubu was a Cleveland band. Yeah, exactly. And, and they stopped by to eat uh, after the show at the Chicken and Burger World. <laughs> that's what it was called. And that's where Lux and Ivy happened to be at that same moment, eating Chicken or burgers? <laughs> One of the two. Two choices. So Lux <laughs> went over to Miriam and Helen, and he, and he said, like, oh, didn't I see you guys at a show in Cleveland uh, a few weeks earlier? Listen, my girlfriend and I, c- come over here, Ivy. Come, yeah, that's her, the one with the red hair. <laughs> We're in the process of moving to New York City to start a band. Do you know how to play drums? <laughs> and Miriam's, like, in the middle of her sandwich, and she's like, no. No, absolutely <laughs> I not. I have no musical ability whatsoever. <laughs> and he goes, that's better. Perfect. Yes. So they exchanged addresses and Miriam went back, you know, to her chicken and burger or whatever. And like Helen's like, what was that about? And she's like, I don't know. I think somebody named Tux and Ivy uh, <laughs> want to start a band with me. But that's cool. Yeah. And, you know, they were in the Lux and Ivy. It took them a while to make it to New York City. Miriam, though, she wasn't quite ready to leave Ohio just yet. So when Lux and Ivy decided to move to New York City in the fall of 1975, she stayed behind, at least for the time being. Yeah, they were still friends. I mean, they would correspond once in a while. Yeah. That September, Ivy and Lux drove to New York with just enough money for two nights in a hotel, which they figured two nights, fuck yeah, we can find an apartment in two nights in New York City. This (laughs) is going to be easy. This (laughs) is going to be so simple. But after the money was gone, two nights went by, and the third night was spent at a truck stop in Jersey, they decided if we can't find something by the fourth night, we're going home. We have to go back to Ohio. But as luck would have it, they were able to find a fourth floor apartment on East 73rd in the Upper East Side, just a half hour ride on the F train down to CBGB. And actually three blocks away from where Mad Daddy shot himself. Oh, God. <laughs> just right around the corner. They didn't, yeah, they didn't they, know they didn't, that. They didn't know. Yeah, it was just pure coincidence. However... New York City in 1975 was not quite the bohemian paradise that they'd envisioned. No, it turns out that they were still the weird ones. <laughs> you know, dressed all weird and getting harassed. Because what they saw when they were in Ohio is like uh, in all these rock music magazines is like how cool the New York dolls were like walking down the street with their getup. They figured like, oh, there must be a city filled with a bunch of glamorous, weird looking people. Yeah, all of New York City is the New York dolls. Fuck no, it's not. But what they saw was real. <laughs> it was real New York City. Real 1970s, on the verge of bankruptcy, New York City, full of trash and junkies and, oh, look, CBGB. <laughs> okay, let's just hop over this dead guy and uh, see if it's any better. Yeah. And even though the city itself was not quite what they thought it would be, CBGB was meeting every expectation. They saw the Ramones, Blondie, the Talking Heads. They saw the Heartbreakers. But the musician who had the biggest influence on Luck as a performer was Alan Vega of Suicide. He's 
got to be there at 3 o'clock. <laughs> I wonder what's going to happen when it doesn't get there. Was <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was their cover of 96 Tears by, you know, Question Mark and the Mysterians, which was just Martin Rev playing da na 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 and fucking Alan Vega going, 96 Tears. Ah! Ah! <laughs> <laughs> but hey, it was fucking Alan Vega, though. Yeah, I mean, they loved what Suicide was doing. I mean, their music was so loud, so confrontational that people could barely stand it. I mean, it hurt their ears so much. And, you know, there's Alan over there hitting his head with a microphone until it bled and singing his heart out. And if someone wanted to get up and use the bathroom, he would just stand in the way and just glare and sing at him. It was like part of the performance, you yeah. know, like he would intrude in on the audience and taunt them, especially if they were hostile. We talk about all of this in our suicide series. Yeah. And they were absolutely hostile most of the time. Yes. But Lux was like, that's fucking it. That's what I want to do. Exactly. Like antagonism could be fun. Yeah. And Lux took what he saw, and you know, because it inspired him to perform in a more like aggressive way by his own way, though. Yeah. Just like how Alan Vega took from Iggy Pop when he saw him perform. So it's kind of like trickled over it's to all, Lux. Yeah, it's all trickling down. Now, the Cramps had to eat just like everyone else. So Ivy worked a series of waitressing gigs while Lux got hired at a record store called Music Maze, which I'd imagine he played the part of the stereotypical fucking record store employee that everyone hates perfectly. <sighs> Whatever. <laughs> that guy? Yeah. yeah, he's like, oh, God, you sure you want to buy that? All right, mm. fine. Yeah, I mean, that, that is the thing about Lux and Ivy is that in interviews, they are, um, uh, uh, they're record store employees. Yeah, I mean, they they really know their stuff. They, they know really, their shit so they well. They do, I mean, but that that is it. <laughs> Anything else sucks. Yeah, everything else sucks. If they don't like it, it sucks. Like, it's music today sucks. You know, and they kept saying that all the time, music today sucks. It sucks. I don't know. Why can't it be like it's, Charlie Feathers? Ah. That, well, that kind of stuff drives me crazy because it's like, oh, well, back then, th they said that you sucked. <laughs> so you're just, th this is the cycle that continues over and over again. Yep. And it was at Music Maze that Lux ended up working with another transplant, a recent arrival from Detroit who'd just moved to New York to be an album cover artist. His name was Greg Beckerleg, but pretty soon he'd be known by the much more rock and roll name of Brian Gregory. So yeah, Brian was like another outsider. You know, he yeah. loved the Stooges and MC5, which makes sense. He's from Detroit. Yeah. And he had just moved to New York City at 24 years old. And he was working in Music Maze, like you said, when Lux walked into the record store to buy Lou Reed's latest album. And Lux got to talking to Perry, which was the owner of the store. And Perry was super impressed with his extensive knowledge on music, especially obscure music. Mm -hmm. You know, so he offered him a job, which I'm sure the interview went like this. Okay. Lux, what do you do if a customer comes to the register with the latest Tony Orlando record? Let's see. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> All right. You start immediately. Immediately. Hired. On the spot. Brian, come meet Lux. So Brian and Lux got to talking at work, and Brian found out that Lux was looking to start a raw rock and roll band like New York Dolls, but with a rockabilly sense. Hell yeah. So Brian was down with that. And later, at closing time, Ivy came by to pick up Lux so they can go out to eat for her birthday. It was her birthday dinner. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out it was Brian's birthday, too. Why are the crabs... Birthday friends! Birthday friends! <laughs> birthday friends! The crabs, everything revolves around birthdays. I know, it's so important. And so, the three of them went out, and they talked about the future of their new band. And Brian got so excited that the next day, he went to the pawn shop and picked up a $25 Giannini model guitar, his first ever, because he didn't know how to play either. Yeah. <laughs> 
and he showed Ivy and Lux how he like stenciled their new band name, the Cramps, on the case, mm-hmm. and they were so impressed. They're like, "Oh, you did this in a day? Wow, cool! Hey, could you give us a minute? Okay, should we tell him that we wanted him to be the bassist? <laughs> no, okay, now, uh, yeah, well, let's just have two guitars. Yeah, all right." Perfect. So, yeah, like you said, Greg Breckerleg became Brian Gregory because he was a huge fan of Brian Jones, mm-hmm. the guitarist from Rolling Stones. And that was great that he had decent taste in music, but Lux and Ivy wanted to show him like a less bluesy alternative. So they took him to Seavey's to see the Ramones. And when he saw them, he was so overwhelmed by the, just the sheer energy that the Ramones were conveying on stage that he couldn't handle it and ran outside and puked in the gutter. <laughs> And that honestly, like like Lux and Ivy were just like, did he take anything? It's like, no, he took a sip from a, a glass of wine. <laughs> now he's a cramp. <laughs> now, since Miriam had not made it to New York City just yet, remember Miriam was going to play drums, Brian called up his sister Pam in Detroit and asked her if she wanted to come out and play drums. She, also probably looking to drop the Becker leg name, changed her name to Pam Balam. Now, I know probably about 80% of you automatically just have Black Betty start playing in your head the moment I said Pam Balam. It was actually a reference to a song by the Flamin' Groovies. She's my harem cutie from Hindustan. She's got big wet lips and a bambalam. When she shakes that thing, make for red hot swing. Now, the Cramps, like a lot of the other bands at the time, had to depend on the kindness of others for a practice space. And luckily, the owner of Music Maze let them rehearse in the basement of his store after closing. Oh, thank you, Perry. Thank you, Perry. Ugh, whatever. (laughs) Just try not to suck. There, the Cramps began a long tradition of learning and playing covers, starting with an unlikely bubblegum pop song by the Cassinats Cats singing orchestral circus called Quick Joey Small Run Joey Run. Those were a lot of words.
like Dave D. Dozy McIntosh. It's like it's such a great song that would have been a hit if you didn't have such a stupidly long name. <laughs> <laughs> Cassinat's cat singing orchestral circus. DJ can't say that. I already forgot. <laughs> Besides just rock and roll songs that they liked, the Cramps also delved into their knowledge of Sun Records, learning early Roy Orbison songs that greatly informed their eventual sound and would eventually end up as recorded covers by the Cramps later on. Yeah. There's a captain down that you might know. He goes by the name of Domino. A long keychain and a diamond ring. A blue sport car, he's a crazy king. They love it so that I can't call Domino. as the band began to refine their sound into something like rockabilly without being just a simple, bland revival like the fucking Stray Cats, it's fine. It's The Stray Cats are fine, but it's just it's just a revival, you know? It's yeah. more the same. The Cramps began writing the originals that would make up their first record, songs like the horror host-inspired TV set. murder song it's <laughs> <laughs> so cool i always think like how do they do that the the fucking like the making the guitar sound like it's tuned tune into different tv stations yeah i think you put the pick sideways oh <laughs> well i like it better when it's like how do they do that <laughs> how do they do that now, as it turned out ivy wasn't the best waitress or at the very least she fucking hated waiting tables so she had a bit of a career change in 1976 that actually ended up influencing her 
as a performer. Yeah, she decided to get into the dominatrix business at a place called the Victorian. Oh, the Victorian. Yes. That's where she learned what an English massage was. What's an English massage? It's a beating. (laughs) An English beating. Oh, nice. Well, it paid better than waitressing, which helped out the band financially. And it gained her experience with like a fun and, you know, a seemingly dangerous sexual performance, which is what they eventually wanted to convey in their live shows with with their music. Plus, the BDSM outfits look cool. They look cool as shit. Yes, like rubber straps and cupless bras and stockings with garter belts. I mean, all of it. Like, And she looked great in it. She really did. I mean, and, and you know, with the way that Ivy would strut across the stage, like, it's very dominatrix-like. It's very, very fucking sexy. It's so cool. Yeah, it's so fucking cool. And the way, and you know, and we'll get more into, you know, the way Lux would move on stage as well. But it's like, it is just, it's dangerous sexy. That's them. Yeah. Now, it was around this time that the first Cramps drummer, Pam Balam, left the band for reasons that are either unclear or unimportant. But as fate would have it, Miriam Lena had just returned to New York City from Ohio just in time for America's Bicentennial. Oh, yeah, July 4th, 1976. They went to go see the fireworks. Yeah, yeah. Yay! Yeah, she moved to the Lower East Side with her friend James and actually became roommates with Pam. Oh. Yeah. Right. Uh, that was actually right before Pam quit the cramps. Yeah. So after a few months, when Miriam joined the cramps, Lux gave her a pair of drumsticks and pronounced her the world's greatest drummer. I love that. That was it. She didn't have an audition or was even told what to do. She hasn't even held a pair of drumsticks before. (laughs) She she had no experience. But Lux was in front of the greatest drummer in the world. (laughs) And it was time to hit those skins, Miriam. Hit those skins. Do it. And so later, actually, she did get one drum lesson from Tommy Ramone. From the Ramones. Yeah, he taught her how to hold the drumsticks. Hold them like this, like that. Yes, okay, you got it. Oh, that's it. Wow. I can't believe I'm in front of the greatest drummer in the world. (laughs) It's truly an honor to show you how to hold them. (laughs) But she could fucking bang on those drums. She could bang on those drums. But, you know, her... Being, you know, a complete novice at drums, like it informed the cramps later sound like she would not play on songs the Lord taught us. But, you know, as we just heard on TV set that like boom, 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 that came from Miriam Lena not knowing how to play the drums all that well. That's great. But that's how she could keep the beat. And that's how it ended up influencing the cramps later on. So with Miriam officially in the band, the cramps armed with enough covers and originals to at least play a show finally got an audition at CBGB. Although the show didn't go as well as they hoped. No, no. Well, they got the audition because Miriam was friends with the Dead Boys back in Ohio and introduced them to Lux and Ivy. And so they got along really great and all and all all of them being from Ohio helped. Yeah. And the Dead Boys at that time, they were regulars at CB's. So they got the cramps to open for them on November 1st, 1976 to audition in front of the owner, Hilly Crystal. So they got to play in front of a packed house on Monday night. Which went as well as any band who's never played a gig went. Yeah. They put new strings on their guitars before they went on stage so they wouldn't have to worry about breaking them. No. But the problem with that is that they were totally out of tune. And when they were already on stage, they were like, just... Just act natural. Just keep going. <laughs> just, just just, finish the set. Yeah, new guitar strings go out of tune almost immediately. You want to do that, like, days before the show. You really want to break them in. Some people thought it was a statement. <laughs> like, some sort of avant-garde stuff. Like, oh, I get it. I get, I get it, man. Yeah, I get yeah. it. Uh, they actually did pretty well. I mean, they got a few encores, and, and, and it was pretty good for a band that was 
barely a pant. Mm -hmm. And Peter Crowley, he was there. He saw that. He was a booker at, at you know, a lot of venues or, uh, around that time. And he said that they, they were so off key, it hurt his ears. And the songs were just falling apart. They were terrible, but magically terrible, he said. <laughs> <laughs> and they were backstage crying afterwards because Hilly Crystal said, now nah, you guys are a joke. You guys are not playing here. Yeah. So Peter went back and said, Hey, I'll book you at Max's Kansas City. I'm I, I'm I'm booking that venue right now, uh, but please bring a tuning machine, <laughs> please. And they did. Yeah, they did. That was about to be their fucking home, and that's where we'll pick back up for part two of the Cramps. Yes. Thank y'all very much for listening to this, uh, and and always thank you for listening uh, to No Dogs in Space. Uh, we very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. If, if you want a No Dogs in Space uh, T-shirt, we got those for sale. They're oh, back. Right. They're, they're back uh, in stock. Uh, you can go to uh, lastpodcastmerch.com uh, to buy those. They're fucking awesome. Uh, Matt Wise designed both those and our logo. Uh, you can follow him on Instagram at yyyy underscore s. Uh, he's one of my favorite artist out there right now. He's fucking great. Uh, and of course, we also have our band of the week. That's right. Thank you very much for, to all of our bands who sent in their music. Of course, you can send your music in to nodogsinspace at gmail.com uh, if you want it to be played. Uh, and we've gotten so many. They're all so fucking great. But today's band is Vuvu Zella. Yeah, they're so great. I loved it. I, I was listening to it really early in the morning, like at 6 a.m. And I was like, oh, gosh, we got to play this. <laughs> it's great. I mean, they, they don't have a presence on Spotify right now, uh, but they have uh, all their shit over on Bandcamp. Uh, the song we're going to play uh, is Like a Lion. It's off of their album, The Hollow Choir. Um, it's fucking awesome. So yeah. enjoy it, everybody. Uh, and thank you. all oh, And don't forget, we have a playlist that we have with every single episode on Spotify. Just search uh, Marcus Parks and you you will find it and we will remember to put it up by the time this episode goes out because we forget sometimes i'm sorry I forget thank you for reminding have, us i have so much work to do <laughs> uh yes thank you very much uh everybody yeah uh all the songs are available over there and uh, for every episode that we've done so hey enjoy Bubuzella. this song is called like a lion we'll see you all next week for crafts part two goodbye
Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One. Because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 